Grab your Bible and turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. I grew up in a church that believed the Bible is the very word of God. I was taught from the earliest ages that every single word in this book is inspired and therefore equally important. When it came to the Bible, we were taught that we needed to read it, know it, and memorize it. And not just that, but we needed to live it out and apply it to our lives. So I remember when when I read my Bible as a kid, uh, I found there were times that was pretty easy to do. John 3.16 was easy to apply. Believe in Jesus. Ephesians 6.1 says, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. I thought I, I can do that most of the time. I can clearly see, though, how these verses applied to me today. But then there were other parts of the Bible where that wasn't so clear. For example, there's a story I remember reading about the prophet Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 2. Some young boys made fun of Elisha by calling him baldhead. And so two bears came out of the woods and mauled them to death. True story. You go look that up. I remember thinking, okay, God... How do I apply this one? Uh, I guess I need to be like really careful about not making fun of bald men. And since I'm trending that direction, I I agree. That's a good thing. But you know, I think a lot of us experience the same problem when it comes to the Old Testament laws. There are parts of the law that seem to have a clear application to us today. Don't steal, don't kill. Those make sense. I can see how those commandments would be important for me today. But then there are verses like one we're going to see today in Exodus 23, 19. It says, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. You seen that? (laughs) Look, I don't own goats. And even if I did, I don't think you'd have to tell me twice not to boil it in its mother's milk. So why is this a necessary command? Does this particular verse still matter today? Unless you think this is just some kind of silly exercise about the strange verses in the Bible. Actually, how to interpret the Old Testament law is a part of some critical conversations going on today. For example, I remember several years ago when the Supreme Court legalized gay marriage. As Christians pushed back and cited verses from places like Leviticus on why homosexuality is a sin, I remember people on the other side saying, oh, oh, look at you you got no problem eating shellfish or pork, and you disobey the law right there about wearing clothing with multiple kinds of fabric. Why do you just pick out this law you don't like, and then you ignore the very next one? You're just a a hypocrite. How, How do we respond to that? Why does it seem that we pick and choose which Old Testament laws to follow today? Do these old rules still matter? And if they do, What do they mean for us as Christians living today? That's what I want us to wrestle with this morning as we continue walking through the book of Exodus. And it is more important than ever that we all understand what has come before in this book. These laws that we're going to cover today did not show up in a vacuum, but they were given to a specific people in a specific time. And they were given after Israel's redemption. God did not see Israel in slavery and give them the law. He didn't say, hey, if you guys can keep my law and do as I say, then I will save you and bring you out. No, he saved them first on the basis of his love and grace. 
He saw them suffering in slavery. He remembered his covenant with their forefather Abraham, and he raised up a deliverer named Moses. He sent plagues to judge their enemies, and he miraculously parted the Red Sea to bring them to new freedom. God first made Israel his special people by saving them, and then he brought them through the desert to his holy mountain to receive the law. Also that he could show them who he is and how he wants them to live as his people. He's saying, Israel, if you're going to belong to me and represent me to the other nations around you, then you're going to have to live a certain way. And that, le- that way of living is where we have come to today. From the end of Exodus 20 through Exodus chapter 23, we have what Moses called the book of the covenant. These are laws that fleshed out specifically what was generally prescribed in the Ten Commandments. I heard another pastor explain it like this. He said, the Ten Commandments are like the U.S. Constitution, and the laws that come after the Ten are like federal laws today. The Constitution is the foundation for our society and legal system. They give the general parameters for how things should function. Then the laws that our government passes today are specific applications of the Constitution to the needs of our day. So whenever a law is challenged in court, the job of the court is to see if the law is constitutional or not. That's similar to how the Ten Commandments and the laws we will look at today were intended to work. So that means it's important to know the specific outworking of these laws do not apply to you and me in a direct, literal way. As we will see, many of them could not be directly applied today, even if we wanted to. But the principles behind these laws do apply to us today. They give us an ethical framework that Jesus' followers can use to live a life that honors God. Just as we saw with the Ten Commandments, these laws tell us something about God and his desires for his people. All scripture is indeed breathed out by God and profitable for us. Today, some of it just requires a bit more work to get the application. So as we walk through these chapters, let's look for the principles behind God's laws for Israel. And as we do, let me show you three things they can teach us today. Let's start Exodus chapter 20. Look at the very end, verses 22 through 26. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, For if you build your tool on it, or if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. I've told you guys many times before, any time you come to a difficult passage of Scripture and you read it and you think, what in the world is this talking about? Always start with the original context. Ask yourself, How would the original readers, the very first people to read this, how would they have understood these verses? Well, we just saw that God gave the Ten Commandments. 
And the very first of those ten dealt with how Israel should worship God. God said he should be worshipped alone. He's not to be worshipped through an idol. That was number two. And here again we see that emphasis showing us that worship was God's primary concern. For ancient Israel, they were surrounded by nations that worshipped many gods. They worshipped gods made of silver and gold. They also worship their gods through various altars and rituals. So what God is doing here is making sure Israel understood that their worship of him was to be different. We see that especially in the instructions, in the instructions about the altar. Israel would make sacrifices to God, but their altar was to be made a certain way. The strange part was that they were not to make steps for the altar because, and I quote verse 26, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. What's up with that? <laughs> well, let's remember that in this time, men wore tunics or robes. So if they went upstairs, well, you get the idea. And in this time, a key part of the Canaanite rituals involved sexuality and nudity. So God was guarding his people against any hint of that in worship to him. And this is a very important theme in this section of law. God wanted his people to be different from the peoples around them, to stand out. And we can sum it up like this. Here's our first point this morning. We learn about God's law. Number one, God's law demands holiness. This is really what's at the heart of all this law. God is holy. Holiness is central to his character. And holiness means other than, separate, pure, so as God's people, Israel was called to holiness. This is why they had so many laws about the foods they ate and what they touched and how they cleaned things. It was all about keeping separate the things devoted to God and honoring him with everything. Israel needed to know that they served the holy God who could not and would not tolerate sin, and they needed to approach him with reverence. So what does that mean for us today? As God's people, do we have a call today to be holy? Do we? Absolutely. Listen to this from 1 Peter 1, 14 and 15. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. As followers of Jesus, look, we know we've been saved by grace through faith. We cannot and will not and do not earn our salvation. But once we're saved by Jesus, then we're called to walk in holiness. We're called to demonstrate who our God is. And today we may not worship on altars living under the new covenant. But I wonder if our situation is at all similar to Israel in any way. I wonder if we are perhaps tempted also to worship other things around us in God's place. What do you think? I think absolutely. If we just look around us, we'll see people worshiping all sorts of things. Look, worship is not just about bowing down to a statue. Worship is simply passionate devotion. Do we see anything in our culture that people are passionately devoted to? Hmm. <laughs> of course we do. And just like Israel, those things threaten to pull us away from God. And often the way it works is how it worked for Israel. The Israelites didn't usually just abandon God completely. Rather, what they did was simply add on other gods and other practices to him. As Christians, we often do the same. 
We don't completely disavow Christ and walk away from the faith, but rather we try and add on the worship of something else. We go to church on Sunday mornings, but we worship our job or our career during the week. We obey God with our finances, but our schedule and our time is all about us or our kids or our grandkids. God demands holiness from his people. Our worship of him and him alone is the most important thing for us to remember. That's why when Jesus summed up the entire law, he said, This is the first and great commandment. Love the Lord your, Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul. God gave his law first and foremost to ensure that the people were loyal to him and worshiped him alone in holiness. Let's move now to the next chapter, Exodus 21. And Are you ready to get into the thick of it? Because here it comes. All right, Exodus 21, verses 1 through 11. Now, these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and then the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. I read that entire section this morning so that you could see we are not skipping the hard stuff. All right? These are the kinds of passages we need to wrestle with. Because so often I've found this is what happens. We as Christians, we, don't, we skip these parts. We don't really think about them. Then our kids go off to college or we go into the workplace and we hear people say things like, Oh, well, you know the Bible supports slavery. And the Bible endorses polygamy, and the Bible demeans women, and you're going to trust that old book for your beliefs on sexuality and gender? Come on. And then we we go home, and we look, and we read passages like Exodus 21 for the first time for ourselves, and we just get all spun around. And we start having doubts, and we think, what in the world? What's going on? Listen to me, guys. Don't skip the hard stuff. If there is something challenging or something you don't know or understand, grab it by the horns and ride the bull. We are not the first people to wrestle with hard verses. This book has been around a long time. And we won't be the last people to ask these questions. So I want you to listen to me closely today in this section. This is a major battlefield for us when it comes to Christianity and trusting the Bible. What do we do with passages like this that to our modern ears sound very outdated and at worst even offensive? Well, first, we do exactly what I mentioned earlier. We've got to view these verses through an ancient lens instead of our modern lens. And when we do, we may actually be surprised by what we see. 
we may see that at the time, these laws were not repressive. They were actually revolutionary. Let's take first the laws about slavery. Slavery was a practice that predates the book of Exodus and was widespread around the world at this time. The Bible does not invent or endorse slavery, but it does regulate it in this time period. Now, today, when we hear the word slavery, we think of the horrific chattel slavery that took place in our nation's history. But what is described here is quite different. For one, unlike the transatlantic slave trade, slavery here was not a forced bondage or a permanent one. Look down at verse 16 a few verses later. It says, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. That one verse right there tells us that something was different about this sort of slavery. That one verse makes what our country did in purchasing and enslaving human beings evil in the sight of God, worthy of death. We also see in the verses we read that the slavery referenced here was not for life. Every seven years, slaves were to be freed and without any debt. Slaves could have wives and children. And slave owners were forbidden from physically harming their slaves. Down in verse 26 and 27, it says, If a man destroyed his slave's eye or knocked out his tooth, the slave could legally go free. All of these facts made the slavery in Israelite culture more like indentured servitude. That's why some Bible translations use the word servant instead of slave. Slavery in this culture was a way for those in poverty to sell themselves into slavery to survive and then to even move up in society. This is why we see that some slaves even chose to remain as a part of their master's household permanently. But again, that was their choice. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying being a slave in this culture was desirable. And there were certainly many abuses But it's clear that God allowed the institution of slavery to serve a temporary purpose to deal with poverty among his people. Notice that I said temporary. For God sowed in scripture the very seeds that would one day abolish slavery. Study history. And what you'll find is the people who ended slavery in the Western world were Christians. People like Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King Jr. appealed to the Bible as the means for fighting for justice for all. Okay, but what about the laws that speak about women? Well, again, let's put our ancient glasses on. Women in the cultures around Israel in this time were often severely mistreated and abused. Women were viewed, often viewed as property and as useful only for continuing on a family line. So again, these, these laws actually elevated women to a place of greater respect and equality. We saw that in this time when a young woman became of age to be married, a sum of money was given from her suitor to her father with what they called a bride price. In this way, yes, a man purchased his wife. And I know this sounds barbaric, but the point was for the man to demonstrate his seriousness toward caring for the young lady and his ability to provide for her financially. If he could put up the money for her, he could take care of her. In this time, it actually gave a level of protection for the young woman since she would be unable to provide for herself any other way. We see other protections for women in the verses we read. If married into the family, she's to be treated as family. 
She's to be provided for materially, even if her husband took multiple wives, which is a whole other conversation on polygamy for another time. And if a man could not provide for a woman in his household, he was to let her go back to her original family or marry someone else. Now, we know we don't operate in this way today, and we recoil at the idea of a bride price, though I would say many of you men spent a hefty sum on that engagement ring. It's another story. But what we see is that God was meeting Israel culturally where they were and moving them along in a particular direction. That direction continues into the New Testament where we see Jesus elevate the position of women in society and the church. And this has actually brought us to where we are today. Again, look at history. Everywhere Christianity has taken hold in the world, women have been lifted up in their culture and given greater rights. So placed within the proper context and understanding, we can see how God was calling Israel to be a society built on justice. That's our second point we learned this morning. Number two, God's law demands justice. And this is not just true for slaves and women, but for all of Israel's dealings with one another. God takes the moral principles in the Ten Commandments and gives specific examples for Israel. These are what we refer to today as civil law or judicial law, meant to help God's people live together as a functioning, flourishing community. And we don't have time to walk through every single one of these laws. I encourage you to go read them later. But follow along as we, we break this down. In the rest of chapter 21, we see laws against physical harm toward one another. We even see laws on what to do when an animal causes harm. In chapter 22, we see laws about restitution and what to do with issues of stealing or accidentally harming someone's property. At the end of chapter 22, we see laws about fair treatment toward immigrants and the poor. Then at the beginning of chapter 23, we see laws against lying and cheating others. So we can clearly see how God is simply taking the moral principles found in the Ten Commandments and applying them to specific situations. And we can do the same today. There is so much that we could say here about what this would be like in our current culture. But I will simply say this. As followers of Jesus... We should not be afraid of talking about justice in our society. We should actually be the ones demanding justice the loudest. Because the justice we desire is not rooted in any sort of man-made theory or fleeting feeling of right or wrong. But it's rooted in the very heart of God. We should have no issue getting involved in the political sphere. Or even using the powers of a democratic government to lobby for justice. This means fighting against various justice issues like abortion, racism, the lottery, pornography, predatory lending. Yes, all those things are examples of injustice today. This also may mean speaking out for the fair treatment of refugees, fixing our immigration system, protecting children and the elderly, and adoption and foster care. This touches on so many issues and while doing justice often requires the use of our political system, these are not necessarily political issues. They are not right or left or woke or whatever. Like, I understand there are abuses 
There's posturing with all this stuff. And there's room for debate on the best way to deal with the issues I listed. I'm not saying issues of justice have simple or clear solutions, and I'm not proposing today a political agenda to fix all our problems. I'm just saying we should rest assured that when you stand on the side of justice, you stand on the side of God. These laws are what Jesus summed up with the simple command, love your neighbor as yourself. He put that one right next to loving God. That's what doing justice is. It's simply loving people. So while the specific application for Israel may look different than how we apply it today, God's law still demands justice. Let's finish by looking at the last section. Flip over to Exodus 23, verses 10 through 19. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed." Pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall not eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a goat in its mother's milk. Again with the goats. (laughs) Will you please tell us what is up with the goats? Okay. I will, calm down, okay? God ends this section of law where he began with a focus on worship. The law against boiling a goat was likely against a religious practice performed by the Canaanites. Historians have discovered an ancient ritual whereby a goat would be boiled in its mother's milk and the milk would then be sprinkled on the crops so that the gods would give the ground greater fertility. So again, what God is doing is protecting his people from the particular things they will face in the days to come. He's warning them against any other practices of worship that could take away from him. This last section then is what we call ceremonial law. It speaks to the various ceremonies Israel was commanded to perform in worship, including feasts and sacrifices. And what we find in the New Testament is that the ceremonial law has been fulfilled by Jesus, including the Sabbath. The very idea that sacrifice was baked into the law tells us that God knew his people couldn't keep it perfectly. He knew they would break it and that the law would show them their sin and that this then would drive them to their need for a Savior. That's the third and last point we learned. Number three, God's law demands a Savior. Listen to this from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 and verse 4. It says, For since the law has 
but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. In verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. We see right here that the law was given to Israel not as a means to be an end in itself. God didn't give Israel these rules so that they could be saved. Obeying the law can't save anyone because no one can keep it. That's why they had to offer sacrifices over and over and over and over again. But when Jesus came, he fixed that. He said he came to fulfill the law. He said he was the Lord of the Sabbath. And we see in Hebrews that he is the once and for all perfect sacrifice. Ultimately, the law should point us to Jesus because you and I can't keep these moral principles we've talked about today on our own. We are sinners who deserve God's judgment. We lie, steal, and kill, and fail to love our neighbors at every turn. So what we need is not a better resolve to keep God's law. What we need is not better rules or better motivation. What we need is a new heart. We need to be saved and changed from the inside out. And that's exactly why Jesus came and died and rose again. Through him, we can be forgiven. We can be changed. And then we can learn to walk in the spirit. Through Jesus, we can learn to obey God and please him with our lives. And then we can actually begin to live out these all-important principles we see in God's law. So, does this still matter? Yeah, yes, it matters immensely. But it won't matter a lick until you turn to Christ to be saved. Look, you cannot earn your way to God or to heaven. Following a list of morals or rules will never get you there. You and I need a Savior and we have one in Jesus. Trust him first. Experience his grace. Then follow his commands. Would you pray with me?